Questions to the Prime Minister. Jack Brereton. Number one, Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, I've been asked to reply on behalf of my right hon. Friend, the Prime Minister, who is today in Belfast attending the funeral of Lyra McKee. This was the, a brutal, cowardly murder of a young woman, a brilliant journalist who represented all that is good in Northern Ireland. And those responsible for her murder have nothing to offer anyone from any community in Northern Ireland. And I'm sure that members right across the House will want to join me in sending our deepest sympathies to Lyra's partner, Sarah, her other family members and her friends. And as her family have asked, we today say that we stand with Lyra. Yeah. Mr Speaker, the attack on three Christian churches and three hotels in Sri Lanka on Easter Sunday was a horrific and cowardly act, and the House will know that a number of British citizens were also killed. <coughs> Yesterday, my right honourable friend, the Prime Minister, spoke to the Prime Minister of Sri Lanka to send her condolences to all affected and to offer his government any assistance they may need. I am sure the whole House will not only want to join me in sending sympathies and condolences to all who were caught up in that horrific attack, but I hope too that the House will perhaps reflect on the fact that that atrocity committed on Easter Sunday came just a couple of weeks after an equally brutal uh, and, and appalling attack in Christchurch, New Zealand, upon the Muslim community worshipping there. And as we stand today between Easter and next uh, week, the beginning of the solemn month of Ramadan for our Muslim fellow citizens, I hope this will be a time, not just for members, but for all our fellow citizens of all faiths and of none to come together and to stand up for the values of mutual respect, tolerance and religious diversity which embody what is best about our country. Jack Brereton. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I'd like to echo those thoughts of sympathy and condolence. Uh, rejuvenating our town centres in Stoke-on-Trent is absolutely essential. Would my right honourable friend join me in welcoming the Open Doors pilot recently announced at Fenton in my constituency and agree that our future High Streets Fund bid for Longton must also succeed? Um, Mr Speaker, I'm happy to, to join my honourable friend in welcoming the Open Doors pilot and his constituency and we very much welcome bids from places like Longton Town Centre for this fund. Uh, my right honourable friend, the Community Secretary, is going to study all the bids carefully before making a decision later this year, but he and I know that my honourable friend is going to be a doughty champion of the claims of his constituency in particular. Yeah. Emily Thornbury. Yeah. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. The Minister for the Cabinet Office and I usually enjoy trading a few jokes at these sessions, but sadly, this really isn't a week for laughter. We on this side join him in standing in solidarity and shared grief with the people of Sri Lanka and all those who lost loved ones on the Easter, Easter Sunday slaughter of peaceful worshippers and innocent tourists, at least 45 of them children, and among them the, the eight-year-old cousin of our friend, the member for Hampstead and Kilburn, an act of utter depravity and evil which stands in sharp contrast to the words of love written by Ben Nicholson about his wife 
and the children that he lost. Yesterday, we also celebrated the life, but mourned the loss, of Billy McNeil, the first Briton to lift the European Cup and a man who spent his life fighting against sectarian hatred. And last Thursday, we, war- we-, we mourned the senseless murder of the brilliant young journalist Lyra McKee, whose funeral the Prime Minister is right to attend, and whose death was a horrific reminder of where sectarian hatred ultimately leads. We stand with Lyra. In her name, Mr Speaker, can I ask the Minister for the Cabinet Office to tell us what the Government is doing to bring her killers to justice and protect Northern Ireland from a return to terror? Uh, Mr Speaker, can, can I first uh, very much welcome the, uh, both the tone and the words of the Right Honourable Lady? Um, and can I also say that uh, I would uh, share her tribute to Billy McNeil, who died on Monday. He made no fewer than 790 appearances for Celtic. Uh, it's a testament to an extraordinary career during which he also won 31 major trophies as a manager and a player. And I, I think our thoughts and sympathies are with his family and friends. As, as the Right Honourable Lady will uh, fully understand, um, the decisions about Uh, criminal investigations in Northern Ireland are a matter for the Police Service of Northern Ireland and for the Independent Public Prosecution Service. Uh, We very much hope, as a government, that any member of the public who has information that will lead to Lyra's murderers being brought to justice comes forward, and I am hopeful, given the sense of community solidarity that there has been in Londonderry, Derry, and in uh, Northern Ireland generally, that that information will be forthcoming. I thank the Minister for his answer, Mr Speaker, and I know he speaks with huge authority and passion on this issue. Reading the statement from the so-called new IRA last week, with its talk of attacking enemy forces and its sincere condolences for Lyra's death, it was a sickening throwback to the days that we thought that we'd left behind 20 years ago from despicable individuals whose only desire is to turn back the clock and destroy the progress that's been made. So does the Minister for the Cabinet Office agree with me? This is one of the central reasons that we must find an answer to the Northern Irish border question rather than give these evil terrorists the divisions that they crave. I think that um, I, I would draw a distinction um, between the two. I regard both issues that the Right Honourable Lady has raised as important, but I, I don't think that those murderers in Derry were motivated by any thoughts about the border or about customs arrangements, important though those issues are. I think the, what the Right Honourable Lady said, that I wholly agreed with, was the utter unacceptability of references to police officers in Northern Ireland as if they were somehow a legitimate target. One of the great achievements of the peace-building process in Northern Ireland has been the very difficult and controversial reform of the police service, where you now have young men and women from both unionist and nationalist communities who serve gladly together, upholding law and justice in Northern Ireland, and we should, all of us in this House, continue to send every officer in the PSNI our full support. Emily Thornbury. 
I agree entirely with the sentiments expressed by the Honourable Gentleman, but can I bring him back to the issue of the border? Because I agree with the ends that he's trying to achieve, but the fundamental problem remains the means. We all know that his own party and the DUP will not accept the current backstop, that the only way the government plans to avoid that backstop is to deliver a so-called invisible border. But last week, we saw a leaked Home Office presentation stating that, and I quote, no government worldwide currently has a system in place. Current realisation for a technological solution in the UK is 2030. And, they said, there is currently no budget for either a pilot or for the programme itself. So can the Minister tell us, are the Home Office wrong? Well, I'm not going to, to comment on sort of alleged leaks from uh, government departments. What I can say to the House is, is that the government has allocated £20 million to uh, invest in work on alternative measures that would bring benefits in terms of seamless trade, both to the border between Northern Ireland and Ireland, but which, uh, if successful, more generally could be applied to give us smart borders on all of the United Kingdom's external borders and perhaps offer us some export opportunities for that technology as well. Emily Thornbury. Well, it's interesting what the Minister says, but, uh, but the Home Office you know, also says that there are six problems with deploying these uh, technological solutions. It's expensive and there's no budget. Two, it has to operate with 28 different UK government agencies. Three, it, has to, it needs to operate on both sides of the border. Four, it, it won't be deliverable until 2030. Five, the government has a poor track record, to say the least, on big tech projects. And no one, six, in the world has done anything similar. So that, Mr Speaker, is hardly a recipe for success. The real answer to the Northern Ireland border question is staring the government in the face. 28 months ago and two Brexit secretaries ago, I told the Minister from this dispatch box that the only way to avoid a hard border was staying in a customs union and, of course, the alignment of all rules and regulations. And he indeed himself said three years ago, he said three years ago that for anyone to pretend otherwise, he said, flies in the face of reality. That was the truth then, and it remains the truth today. So why will the government just not wake up to it? Mr. Mr. Speaker, the, I, I did say to the right honourable lady in our previous exchange that there is a £20 million budget that has already been earmarked for this work. It is also the case, whatever the right honourable lady may be reading in the newspapers about uh, timetables, that not just the United Kingdom, but the European Union has committed itself to trying to get these alternative measures agreed by 2020. That is not an undertaking, a commitment that the European Commission has entered into lightly and without some thought and analysis about the chances of achieving that. But could I say to the Right Honourable Lady, um, the solution that she identifies of needing to have a frictionless border on the island of Ireland is what is delivered by the government's withdrawal agreement. Yes. Therefore, what she should be doing is urging her right honourable and honourable friends to vote for what the government is proposing instead of rejecting it and therefore blocking the Brexit which her party's manifesto commits her to. Well, Mr Speaker, we've heard it all before, let's face it. The only point the Minister didn't make this time... The only 
key point the government minister didn't make this time was that Britain must be able to establish her own uh, international trade agreements. Perhaps he's been listening to Nancy Pelosi last week, who made it clear that if the UK government disrupted the open border in Northern Ireland, we could forget all about a free trade deal with the US. So the government is going to spend millions giving Donald Trump the red carpet, golden carriage treatment in June, and, and maybe the state banquet might even be worth it, so long as he's forced to sit next to Greta Thunberg. <laughs> or or how, about, how about this? If then he has Greta on one side and David Attenborough on the other, that would be three hours well spent. But the truth is, but the truth is, Mr. Speaker, that it will all be a giant waste of taxpayers' money because the US Congress will never agree to a trade deal unless we have a solution for the Irish border that will actually work. And this government simply doesn't have one. Mr. <laughs> Mr. Speaker, you know, it's just two short years ago that the Right Honourable Lady said of President Trump, we should welcome the American president. We have to work with him. I just wonder whether something has changed about the US administration or whether something has changed about her own leadership ambitions that causes her to alter her words in this way now. The, the, which is it? Come on, which is it? The government... The government and the Labour Party, I thought, both wanted to see no tariffs, no quotas, no rules of origin checks, a seamless border on the island of Ireland. Yet three times the Right Honourable Lady and her colleagues have voted against a deal that would deliver those things to which they claim to be committed. It is about time that she put principle and the national interest ahead of party advantage. I think, Mr Speaker, we'll find that there's only one side of this House that has a leadership contest at the moment, and it's very active as we speak. But, Mr Speaker, in a week like this, when we have all been shocked and saddened by the horrific acts of terrorism at home and abroad, we remember that the first job of any government is to keep our country and our citizens safe. And even before our concerns about the economy, the main reason we need to keep an open border with Ireland is to preserve that peace and security that millions of British and Irish citizens have come to depend upon, but which, in a week like this, seems to hang like a thread. So if the government is serious about putting the country first, the whole of our country, will the Minister for the Cabinet Office accept? That means finally getting serious about the cross-party negotiations and putting the option of a customs union on the table. Mr Mr. Speaker, I I appreciate the Honourable Lady has not been in the room at the times. So I think she's now being described as in the, the sort of outer inner circle uh, around the, uh, the, la- the, la- the Labour leadership. But um, I can say that the, the, the substance and the tone of those conversations between the government team and the opposition team have been constructive. I think that there is a genuine attempt to try to find a way through. But I'm not going to hide the fact, Mr Speaker, that this is very difficult. Because if it's going to work, it will mean both parties needing to make compromises and us ending up with a solution with a solution that unlike 
that, unlike any other so far proposed, will get a majority in the House. So far, this House has rejected our deal. It has rejected the opposition's proposals. It has rejected a referendum. It has rejected revocation. It has rejected a customs union. It has rejected Common Market 2.0. And it's not just a matter for, frankly, for government or even for the opposition front bench. It is a matter for every member of this House to take our responsibilities to the country seriously and find a way to agree on a, an outcome that enables us to deliver on the referendum result and to take this country forward. Tom Persglove. Thank you, um, Mr Speaker. Can I also associate myself with the sentiments so eloquently expressed on both sides of the House? Far from what some would have you believe, those of us who voted to leave knew exactly what we were voting for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were voting to control our own borders, to spend our own money, to make our own laws and have those laws judged by our own judges. The Labour policy now appears to be to hold a second referendum. Will my right honourable friend confirm that on his watch and that of the Prime Minister there will be no second referendum, yes or no? The government, the government is uh, very clear indeed that we do not agree with a second referendum and we have voted against uh, a second referendum. Um, all of us in 2016 recall uh, telling our electors that their decision was going to be final and would be accepted whatever the outcome of that referendum would be. And, and I think it would do harm to fragile public confidence in our political institutions were that a commitment to be set aside. Ian Blackford. would join in saying that we are horrified by the atrocious attacks in Sri Lanka and the Minister of the Cabinet Office is right that we should, all of us from all religions and none, should be considering religious tolerance and should be ensuring that we champion that. Yeah. Um, our thoughts as the, the funeral commences shortly are with the family and friends of Lira McKee and we'd like to make clear that we stand with Lira. Yeah, um, yeah. We'd also like to join the celebration of Billy McNeil's life um, and work and of course in addition to Celtic he was previously a manager for Aberdeen yeah. as well in his time. Mr. Mr. Speaker, climate change is the biggest crisis facing the world today. Even the Environment Secretary has admitted that his government has failed to do enough. Yesterday he promised that the UK government would take action. Mr. Speaker, this government has spent millions on nuclear power, they've cut support for renewable energy projects and they've continued to pursue fracking. So does taking action include reversing these damaging policies. Mr Mr Speaker, um, I think as my right honourable friend, the Environment Secretary, said yesterday that um, there is clearly more that needs to be done and probably all of us uh, of an age to be here would recognise that our generations have not done sufficient to meet this challenge. But I think that the honourable lady underestimates um, how much work has been done by the United Kingdom. I mean, since 2010, we've reduced CO2 emissions faster than any other G20 nation. Between 2010 and 2018, we reduced greenhouse gas emissions by about a quarter overall. 
um, our renewable energy capacity has quadrupled since 2010, and the proportion of our electricity coming from low-carbon resources has increased from 19% to more than half in 2018, a record year for renewables. There's a lot more to do, but I think it's a good record on which to base that future action. Kirsty Blackburn. Mr Speaker, I don't think that answer recognises the scale of the challenge that we face. The Scottish Government have already brought forward a climate change bill with some of the most ambitious statutory targets of any country in the world, with the aim of Scotland being carbon neutral by 2050. And if we need to go further, we will. Mr Speaker, the UK Government commissioned new advice from the UK Committee on Climate Change, and it's due next week, on what the UK's targets should be. Can he confirm that when the advice is published next week, that the UK Government will adopt the recommended targets immediately and in full? I'm going to wait to see what the advice is, and I'm sure the House will want to see what the advice is, as well as learn from the Government directly what its decisions are going to be. But can I say to the the Honourable Lady that passing legislation can get you so far, but actually what you need is not just legislation, it is a change in attitude and approach that runs right across society and right across industry. And what what I am encouraged by is that while since 1990 the UK has cut its emissions by 40%, in that same period our economy has grown by two-thirds. So greater prosperity and green policies are not incompatible. They can and should be made to work together. Colin Clark. Mr Speaker, can I associate myself with the words of the front benches? Mr Speaker, to assure the British summer appetite for strawberries and Scottish rasps are fulfilled, would my right honourable friend encourage the Home Office to extend the Seasonal Agricultural Workers Scheme from 2,500 to 10,000 this year and open it up to 30 to 40,000 next year to make sure our appetites are fulfilled? Well, I, I, as I would have expected, my, my honourable friend um, rightly champions both the produce of his uh, constituency and the, the needs of businesses there. Um, I, what I'd say to him is that obviously we have uh, established a two-year pilot that uh, provides for a, a six-month uh, uh, scheme for non-EU migrants to work on UK farms and specifically designed to help the horticultural sector. The pilot's never been designed to meet the full labour needs of the horticultural uh, sector. Um, and clearly we will need to evaluate um, what happens with that pilot in practice, but I know that the Secretary of State for Scotland and the Secretary of State for Environment and Agriculture will be looking very closely at the impact on the North East of Scotland. Thank you, Mr Speaker. In 2015, the Prime Minister, when she was Home Secretary, said that the Police Federation were crying wolf over the impact of police cuts. Now, teachers, specialists, children's and youth workers and others are warning that government cuts are making it harder to protect young people from knife crime. In my current constituency crime survey, many constituents are saying that cuts to services that support young people, as well as cuts to policing, need to be reversed. So could the Minister for the Cabinet Office tell me whether he thinks children and youth workers and my constituents are crying wolf too? 
Well, Mr. Mr. Speaker, the, the facts are that um, the government has increased police funding by more than £970 million for the next year, and the Labour Party voted against that increase in funding when the order came before the House of Commons. But the Honourable Lady is right to say that this is not only about policing and new laws, it is about early intervention. That is why my right honourable friend, the Home Secretary, has secured um, £220 million for early intervention projects to try to steer young people at risk of uh, knife crime and other violent crime away from the gangs that can seduce them into that appalling way of life. Rebecca Powell. Hey, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hey, yeah. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Mr Speaker, passions are running high, including my own, about the devastating effects of climate change. And whilst I believe this government has made great strides decarbonising faster than any country in the G20, we must do more faster and sooner for a sustainable future. So would my right honourable friend ask the Prime Minister to join me in supporting a cross-party call for net zero emissions ahead of 2020? That's, that's greater than our current calls and targets. Sorry, ahead of 2050. <laughs> <laughs> That's more stringent, Mr. Speaker, yeah. than our current targets. Almost 200 cross-party MPs have signed a letter calling for this, and it was instigated by my colleague from Middlesbrough South and East Cleveland. And would he also ask the Prime Minister to meet colleagues and I to discuss enshrining this in law, as proposed by my honourable friend from Cheltenham in his forthcoming 10-minute rule bill? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, can I say, can I first of all pay tribute to my honourable friend for the way in which she has championed this and other environmental issues during her time in the House? Uh, and I can certainly uh, say that you know, a minister, I don't, I don't know whether it be the Prime Minister or, or another colleague, will be happy to see her and other parliamentary colleagues. Um, I, I hope you understand that we will want to look at the advice of the independent uh, climate change committee to, to understand what would be needed to get to that early zero emissions target and, and the practical steps that that would involve. But I can assure her that we are investing more than £2.5 billion to support low carbon innovation in the UK in the next six years alone. Clean growth is a priority for the government and will remain so. So far, I'm afraid, we've managed to get through only 13 questions in more than 25 minutes, so we do need to speed up, as I wish to accommodate backbench members patiently waiting to put their inquiries. Stuart C. Macdonald. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. The proposed closure of Cumberland Tax Office will see 1,300 good quality jobs lost to the town and many others under threat as millions of pounds of spending disappears from the local economy. And that's just one of over 150 tax office closures being overseen by the Treasury. So if the government genuinely wants to build stronger towns and is concerned about towns like Cumbernauld, surely the government must now put a stop to HMRC's damaging tax office closures. Yes. Um, Mr. Mr Speaker, I completely understand the concerns that there will be, particularly amongst some hard-working civil servants in Cumbernauld, who were expecting to be reassigned. Um, there is a difference now happening in the way in which citizens choose to interact with HMRC, with fewer people wanting or needing to access an office and more people uh, being uh, willing and choosing to, to work with the taxman 
online, and that is clearly going to have implications. It seems to me that the, the priority has to be that the priority has to be that we maintain a high quality of service to businesses and to individual taxpayers. Mr. Douglas Ross. Mr Speaker, the Minister will be aware of wildfires burning across the country, including one in Murray, which started near Nakando on Monday and continues despite the efforts of more than 50 firefighters. Will the, uh, my right honourable friend join me in congratulating and praising Incident Commander Bruce Fackerson and all the teams involved and the other emergency services who have made this a multi-agency response and also urge people to assist the fire service by keeping away from the area to allow the dedicated and committed firefighters to bring this blaze under control. I am happy to endorse my honourable friend's tribute to the Fire and Rescue Service in his constituency and also to support his words encouraging members of the public to cooperate fully with those services. Break. Is it uh, the Government's intention to bring forward the Withdrawal Agreement Implementation Bill and to prorogue Parliament <coughs> if it loses at second reading? And wouldn't it in fact be far safer for the Government simply to link the Prime Minister's deal to a people's vote and bring that forward to Parliament? Yeah. Well, Mr Speaker, the, the problem with that proposal is that so far, whenever uh, the idea of a second referendum has been brought before the House, there has been a majority against that. So I don't think that the right honourable gentleman's proposal is actually going to deliver the outcome that he seeks. Mr. David Trudenic. Mr. Speaker, may I associate myself with remarks made about Sri Lanka? My right honourable friend tell us whether he thinks it likely we'll leave, by, leave the European Union by May the 22nd. And does he agree with me that both the major political parties are likely to suffer at the polls if we don't? And what does it say to my Leicestershire constituents about the democratic process if this House can't get this withdrawal agreement to leave the European Union over the line? Speaker, I, I, I completely understand and share that sense of exasperation that my honourable friend has expressed. I mean, it has been made very clear from this dispatch box on several occasions that the consequence of the House voting to reject uh, the withdrawal agreement and, there, and, and to vote in favour of uh, an, an extension is that the government would need to make preparations as required by law for those European elections. The way in which we solve this problem is for Parliament to as- assemble a majority behind a deal, vote for it, get the legislation through and give effect to our departure from the EU. Mary Glyndon. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Having experienced their average salary fall by over £2,000 a year since 2010 and expecting just 1% pay rise this year, civil servants in the PCS union are rightly being balloted for industrial action. Will the Minister tell the House when these civil servants will be free of austerity measures and receive a substantial pay rise, which is long overdue? Well, the, there has been, because of the scale of the deficit which uh, was inherited in 2010, the need for uh, severe restraints over public expenditure, including public sector pay. Uh, where we are today, Mr Speaker, is that there is flexibility within the overall pay ceiling, department by department, for uh, departments to negotiate with their workforces arrangements that do permit uh, higher uh, uh, higher figures for increase in wages than the ones to which the Honourable Lady has referred. 
Vicky Ford. Mr Speaker, on Sunday over 40,000 people will take part in the London Marathon. Many of them are supporting the dementia revolution on behalf of Alzheimer's Research and the Alzheimer's Society. Some of those are sitting on these benches. Uh, the UK is the world leader in dementia research. I visited the Dementia Research Institute with members of the Science and Technology Select Committee today. Will the government continue to support dementia research, encourage more people especially people in their 30s, 40s and 50s, to take part in research trials and wish the very best of luck to everyone in the marathon on Sunday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, can, I, can I join my honourable friend in, in wishing success and strength to everybody taking part in the marathon on Sunday, particularly to members on all sides of this House, and I suspect to one or two people in the press gallery as, as, as well, Mr Speaker. Um, but uh, my honourable friend makes a very important point about dementia. Um, one of the welcome changes we're seeing is that, as a society, we are more open about the fact that many of us are going to live with dementia uh, at some stage in our lives. That government commitment to which he referred to dementia research and to trying to remove the stigma from dementia will be maintained. Last count, I was aware of no fewer than 16 honourable and right honourable members of the House intending to take part in the London Marathon, including the Secretary of State for Wales and indeed the Honourable Lady, the member for Brentford and Isleworth, from whom we heard earlier, but who was too modest or self effacing to mention her prospective involvement. Mr. Sammy Wilson. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I don't think I could run the London Marathon, so you need not me While the McKee family in Northern Ireland are burying their daughter today, uh, murdered by IRA terrorists, hundreds of people in Sri Lanka are burying their loved ones, brutally murdered because of their faith. Christians across the world are now the most religious, the most persecuted religious group with three, nearly 300 million living in fear of discrimination and persecution, and 4,000 being killed every year because of their faith. The government has said that Britain is on their side. Can the minister tell us how is the government using the UK's soft power, our economic power, our com contacts with other governments, and our aid budget to help those who are persecuted daily simply because they believe in Jesus Christ. I mean, the, the aid budget uh, and the Foreign Office diplomatic uh, expenditure budget do give a, continue to, will give and conti will continue to give a priority to human rights, including uh, the, the rights of Christians and people of other faiths. So the honourable right honourable gentleman is quite correct in saying that in many countries, Christians do face persecution and discrimination. We work to try to improve standards of justice uh, and of civil rights in those countries. We work with Christian and other religious communities who are under threat. And my rightful friend, the Foreign Secretary, has recently commissioned a review in particular of our work to help persecuted Christians overseas to make sure that we are focusing the right degree of resource and effort in delivering those improvements in outcome that the right honourable gentleman quite rightly seeks. Richard Graham. Mr Speaker, current immigration requirements 
obliged Commonwealth servicemen and women to pay £2,389 to apply for indefinite leave to remain after four years' service, or almost £10,000 for a family of four. This considerable cost does not reflect the nation's respect for those prepared in extremists to give their lives for our country. I therefore written a cross-party letter with the Honourable Member from Bridge End, signed by 130 Members of Parliament, to the Home Secretary to seek his support to abolish these visa fees. At a time when the UK is Chair of the Commonwealth, would my right honourable friend and the Prime Minister give their support for this great non-party political cause that is supported by the Royal British Legion? I want, Mr Speaker, to pay tribute to uh, men and women from Commonwealth countries who serve in our armed services. Uh, That service is something that this and previous governments have valued enormously. Um, On the particular point that my honourable friend uh, makes about immigration requirements, I'm sure that my right friend, the Home Secretary, will take very seriously and look very carefully at the representations that he is making. Young man! When last month a football referee in Nottinghamshire had to flee a game, lock himself in the car and call the police, the FA response was a six-match ban and a £50 fine. Considering what's happening to Raheem Sterling, Danny Rose and the growth of racism at every level in football and their call for a national forum, isn't it clear that the football authorities are not capable, without our help and government help, of actually getting on top of this problem, particularly of racism in football? Will the government not take a lead in the way the Prime Minister did on Hillsborough and help convene, using their auspices, such a forum as Mr Sterling and others have requested this summer. And perhaps, Mr Speaker, you might offer this location as an appropriate venue for such a forum. Um, Mr Speaker, I think every member of this House will condemn without reservation the behaviour to which the Honourable Member referred. It is something that should be regarded as completely beyond the bounds of acceptability in our society. Um, I can undertake that my honourable friend the Sports Minister will want to sit down with him and any other colleagues in the House who uh, make this a, a priority in order to discuss what more might be done. Costa. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Yesterday, Jane Golding, who chairs the British in Europe, representing over 1.3 million British nationals in the EU27 reminded me that Michelle Barnier's letter is almost one month old in terms of responding to the requirement of this House to carve out citizens' rights element in the withdrawal agreement. Given the absence of a withdrawal agreement being passed in this House, can my right honourable friend inform the House what actions the Government has taken since receiving Michelle Barnier's letter? Well, the, as, I, as I recall, what uh, my, my honourable friend sought, sought successfully was that the government should make representations to the Commission asking them if they would carve the citizens' rights uh, elements out of the, uh, the, uh, the withdrawal agreement overall. 
I think that there, there are some legal problems with that in that the withdrawal agreement stands together as a package and as a package has been submitted to the European Parliament having been formally and legally approved by the European Council. Therefore, to separate elements of that might mean to have, having to go through those European procedures again, assuming the political willingness to do so were there. But I will ask um, my rightful friend, the Brexit Secretary, to speak urgently to my uh, honourable friend to give him an update on where we are on this. Bill Esterson. <coughs> it's complacent to claim we are on target to meet our climate change obligations when emissions from air freight and shipping of imports and exports are excluded from the figures, will this government be honest about the scale of the challenge of climate change? We need to fully invest in renewable energy, drop the fascination with fracking and declare a climate change emergency, because that's the reality of what we face. Well, Mr. Mr. Speaker, the the rules on uh, emissions from shipping are are not unique to the United Kingdom. These are are global standards uh, of of, of measurement. Um, And as I said in earlier exchanges, Mr. Speaker, um, the government's first to say that there is more that needs to be done, but I think that the Honourable Gentleman does us an injustice in not acknowledging that we have a better track record on this than any other member of the G7. He asked about investment. Our annual support for renewables will be more than £10 billion by 2021. We've opened the world's largest offshore wind farm, capable of powering 600,000 homes, the world's first ever floating offshore wind farm. 99% of solar power that we have in the UK has been deployed since 2010. That is a good track record. Dr Julian Lewis. The government accept that the telecommunications firm Huawei is intimately linked with the Chinese Communist government and its deeply hostile intelligence services. Well, I mean, legally speaking, it is a, it is a private firm, not a government-owned company. But my, my, my right honourable friend takes us to the question about the uh, proposed rollout of uh, G, 5G networks. The Department for Digital, Culture, Media and Sport has commissioned a very wide-ranging thorough review of this. We are giving priority to stronger cybersecurity practices across the entire telecommunications sector, greater resilience in telecommunications networks, and critically, diversity in the entire supply chain for 5G, because this question goes beyond any single company. When we've taken decisions about that review, we will announce them to the House in a proper way. Honourable gentleman, member for New Forest East, as I do, I think the Minister will recognise that he'll probably hear from his right honourable friend on this matter, well, a few hundred more times in the coming weeks. Chris Elmore. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The Government continues to chronically underfund the Welsh Railway Network with planned spending running at 6%, despite having 11% of the network. So can he set out when the Government will start investing in Welsh Railway infrastructure and give Welsh commuters the investment they deserve? Mr Mr. Speaker, we're investing record amounts in Wales railway infrastructure. Network rail investment in the Wales route for control period period six that takes us up to 2024 will be more than one and a half 
billion pounds. It'll deliver improved journeys for passengers in Wales on the most advanced new trains. And in South Wales, passengers and commuters are already experiencing real improvements thanks to the new intercity express trains, each of them having 130 extra seats compared with a typical high-speed train. I really would have wished that the honourable gentleman could have uh, paid tribute to that achievement rather than carping. Stephen Kerr! Mr Speaker, if I may add a few words of tribute of my own to Billy McNeil, who was a childhood hero of mine and truly a legendary Celt. Um, his family, uh, reminiscent of the question that was asked earlier by the Honourable Member for Chelmsford, his family have described his brave struggle with dementia. And Mr Speaker, my own mother passed away earlier, earlier this year uh, due to the effects of dementia. Scottish universities are doing world-leading research into the prevention of dementia, and they currently receive about £100 million of funding each year from the European Union. Will my right honourable friend confirm that this funding will be maintained and this research will be protected as we leave the European Union? Well, Mr. Mr. Speaker, of course, if we get the implementation period envisaged by the uh, withdrawal agreement, then those funding arrangements will continue and, until the end of the implementation period. At that point, uh, there will need to be decisions by government as a whole about its spending priorities, including on medical research. But as I said in response to our honourable friend, the member for Chelmsford, the government's commitment to dementia research and to ending the stigma on dementia is something that will continue. Daniel Rowley. Wages stagnating for more than a decade, in work poverty, rising faster than employment, and we're hurtling towards a climate disaster. What a mess, Mr. Speaker. But in Midlothian, enterprising renewable firms and organisations are doing sector leading work and providing good jobs, but they tell me they're not getting enough support from the government. So the Minister has boasted about renewables in this session, but will he recognise it's not enough and say what more he's going to do and what more the government are going to do to support leading work on renewables in my constituency? Minister, What we're seeing in this country is, is not only the £10 billion pounds, um, that I spoke about in the earlier exchange, but we are seeing enterprising, innovative companies, large and small, seizing the opportunities of developing green technology and renewable energy technology in a, in a way that will take advantage not just of the change in the domestic market, but of that growing export market globally as well. The government will continue through its industrial strategy to work for green growth, and I hope very much that businesses in Midlothian will benefit from that, like businesses elsewhere in the UK. Kevin Rake, Mr Speaker. At the most recent indicative votes, the opposition did move one of its key red lines and supported a proposal that did not specify a permanent customs union, in fact supported customs arrangements, a temporary customs union followed by alternative arrangements. Now that the government and the opposition are virtually on the same page, is it not now the time to put party politics to one side and agree a deal in the national interest? My honourable friend makes uh, an important point, and as we, we look to the future relationship with the European Union, we are looking at the customs arrangement that would be in place as part of that future relationship. 
And we've already indicated, and this is reflected in the existing text of the political declaration, that we want to retain the benefits of a customs union, no tariffs, no quotas and no rules of origin checks. Um, and we remain focused on agreeing an approach that delivers on the result of the referendum, which was for the UK to leave. And I hope that it will be possible to bring members from all sides of the House together in support of a customs arrangement as part of a wider uh, approach to our future relationship with the European Union that enables us to get on with this task in the way that the British people expect. Finally, patience rewarded. Mr Nigel Dodds. Thank you very much indeed, Mr Speaker. And um, to go back to what the Minister started with in this session, in a few minutes the funeral of Lyra McKee will begin in Belfast and the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition are both present rightly. So, um, and we extend our deepest sympathies to our partner Sarah and to her family and friends at this terrible time. And the message across Northern Ireland is that violence is not acceptable and will never be, succeed, never has been acceptable and never will. And will the Minister agree that the utterly repulsive statement from those who carried out this uh, terrible uh, atrocity, that somehow the murder of police officers is totally legitimate and it was just an accident that Lyra was killed, that in standing with Lyra today, we stand with everyone, journalists, police officers, all who serve the community in Northern Ireland. An attack on any one of them is an attack on us all. Minister. Mr Speaker, I agree with every word that the Right Honourable Member has said. I thought that the, the finest riposte to those sickening claims by the terrorists was that there in the Cregan estate in Derry, the leaders of both the Democratic Unionist Party and Sinn Féin came together, putting aside the real differences between them, to reject the path towards violence and terror. The joint statement by all party leaders in Northern Ireland rejecting terrorism. And the visible expressions of both grief and anger towards the terrorists by the communities of both nationalist and unionist in the city of Derry, London Derry, has been a visible but also the most compelling, moving riposte to the uh, evil claims of those behind that terrorist act. Those political leaders those communities in Derry spoke for the reality and for the heart of the people of Northern Ireland. Thank you. Order.